take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Hi, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and welcome to the April 2012 Radiology Podcast. April is a very special month in Boston, as it is the beginning of the baseball season, and we wish the Boston Red Sox well in the coming year. This month, we have an eclectic group of conversations. First, we'll begin speaking with uh, Peter Ensman, professor and chairman of the Department of Radiology at the David Geffen School of Medicine, UCLA in Los Angeles. And Dr. Ensman has written an important report uh, discussing the implications of the change in radiology from a professional service model to an information a business model. We think that our listeners will find this discussion enlightening. Next, uh, my colleague uh, Alex Bankier will be speaking with uh, David Yankelevich from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Uh, David and his colleagues at Mount Sinai have written an interesting uh, original research manuscript on the vexing problem of measuring growth of semi-solid lung nodules on CT. And finally, I'll be speaking with Pierre-Emmanuel Ratu from the INSERM uh, Research Institute in France on uh, their article on the feasibility of using iron oxide nanoparticles to monitor endothelial cell-derived microparticles. And I was really unaware of these uh, microparticles, which have been described as life rafts that are sent out by cells as they're under stress or dying. And we hope that the uh, listeners will find uh, these conversations of interest. Hi, uh, this is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology, and today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Dieter Ensman, who is professor and chairman in the Department of Radiology at the David Kessen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Ensman has authored an interesting article in this month's Radiology entitled uh, Radiology's Value Chain. Welcome, Dr. Ensman. Good morning. Good morning. What exactly is a value chain? Well, value chain is a, a term often used in business that describes the activities that you undertake uh, in your business to generate what in, in the end is either a product or a service. And the reason one puts together value chain is that not all the activities are of equal value. So the value chain tries to pinpoint of all the activities that you perform, which ones really add most value to the end product, and which other ones may be less valuable, may be actually candidates for outsourcing or minimizing your attention to them. Okay. Now, in your article, uh, I think one of the major themes is that the onset of this digital era that we're in has really changed the business model for radiology and has affected the value chain. So, well, what are the changes that have been brought about? 
Well, what the major changes with uh, digitization is that things that used to be intimately tied together or couldn't be separated now are actually can be separated. So image acquisition, image processing, image analysis, even the way a radiologist uh, reads a study, that can now be binned into different activities, some of which can be basically outsourced to a computer. And the reason the value chain is important, and it's important for radiology, is that everybody's aware that reimbursement's not likely to go up, and in fact, it's likely to go down. So increasing productivity in, in the radiology's value chain becomes paramount. And the, the value of looking at different components in a value chain, it gives you an idea of where you may be able to target uh, improvements in productivity and, and other areas where there may not be much opportunity. So, so where are the opportunities for radiology in shifting from what you describe as the professional service model to the emerging information business model? Again, so there are, there are two major issues. One is increasing productivity, another one is increasing the value of radiology services. So we'll address productivity first. Uh, everybody's familiar with the acquisition devices, and certainly if you speed them up, that improves productivity of the entire radiology service. But also in terms of extracting information or image analytics analysis, you may be able to simplify looking at images, which sometimes amount to several thousand in a study, to direct the radiologist's attention to specific areas that are relevant clinically and can be highlighted by sophisticated image processing. So it, the radiologist uses his or her skills, his knowledge base and the visual skills and hones in on very specific areas that are important in the image and you can disregard others. So you can save what is one of the most valuable resources in, in the chain and that's radiology time in terms of interpreting images. So the goal here really is to link up and make use of more use of the microprocessor, which is a cheap way to, you know, to improve productivity. And uh, as I always say, the computer or microprocessor doesn't tire. So it's, it could be a very reliable way to improve productivity. Okay. Uh, any other things that you think radiologists should be aware of in exploiting this shift? Well, one aspect I think people are beginning to recognize, and that is when a radiologist interprets an image, he or she relies on their own personal database, their experience, you know, what they've learned in training and what they've picked up in clinical practice. But that is limited, so I think as time goes on, the digital world will allow radiologists to tap into imaging databases that eventually will be global to help make uh, diagnoses, to help identify a lesion, to help characterize it, and to help determining the relevance to a clinical care to that particular patient. So one of the key pieces is that I think radiologists will begin to rely increasingly on what I'll call external databases and external memory to improve their interpretation of uh, images. Thank you. Well, one of the things that you and others have raised is this notion of integrated diagnostics, that not only would you data mine imaging databases, but you might data mine other databases such as genomics databases or blood lab value databases and the radiologist would serve as the integrating physician for this diagnostic information and this sounds 
feasible when you're in a large institution such as UCLA, but I'm not sure how this would work for physicians or radiologists who are in a community practice setting where they don't have the uh, extensive resources that might be available at UCLA. Can you comment on this? Yeah, so again, the bigger picture in terms of what I think is going on in healthcare is there seems to be, and I've used boring other people's phrases, a transition from volume to value. And everybody understands value is basically the ratio of benefit over cost. And as I've mentioned in the article, the raison d'etre of radiology is really to provide information to a medical decision maker. So the better the information, the more valuable it are in terms of medical practice. And you can make the information better in different ways. One I mentioned is a more accurate diagnosis that might rely on global databases. But another way to add value is to add additional information that gives context and adds context to the imaging information. And when I mention integration, it's what, I, it's what I call pulling a value back into radiology. As you mentioned, it may be the condition who is in charge of integrating information in terms of getting lab data, genomic data, imaging data. But they're very busy. And in fact, radiology may be in a much better position to integrate this information than the referring physician. And in that way, if you provide really well-integrated information, that helps a clinician make a medical decision. You've added value to your report, to your, you know, to your product. And radiology is probably as well positioned as any subspecialty to integrate that kind of information and provide that to the medical decision maker. So in that sense, integration beyond just imaging uh, provides additional value. And I think radiology uh, as a specialty can benefit from that kind of improved product. What do you think we need to do to exploit this opportunity? Uh, radiologists aren't very familiar with genomics, and uh, many might feel this is well beyond the current scope of our practice. Well, it is, so I'm kind of projecting in the future. So th these are that particular integration idea, something that radiology could, could strive for. It's already being done in some areas, so it's not the completely new concept. I think radiology, again, to add value to their product and service, they're going to have to collaborate with other subspecialties, and we do that quite well already. Uh, in this case, it would be a collaboration with pathology, and the, my experience has been that pathologists are quite open to this. Yeah. Um, and this is a kind of database or kind of information that radiology can't generate internally, so the only way to do that is in collaboration with other subspecialties. That's a new skill, but again, the end user will probably appreciate the fact that someone has gone through the trouble to formally, reliably integrate information that's useful to them. Very good. Well, uh, Dr. Rensman, I want to thank you for uh, shedding light on your uh, interesting article, and I do hope our listeners will go through the article in detail to uh, further explore these concepts. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Herb. Hello. My name is Alex Bankier and I'm Deputy Editor of Radiology responsible for thoracic imaging. On today's podcast, we will discuss an article entitled Internal Growth of Non-Solid Lung Nodules, Radiologic-Pathologic Correlation. As our guest today, we have David Jankelewitz, Professor of Radiology at the Department of Radiology, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, New York. 
Hello, Dr. Jankelevitz, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Before we uh, really go into the core of your very interesting paper, I would like to ask you to explain to our listeners very briefly what makes these non-solid lung nodules so difficult to evaluate, what practical problems do they pose, and, and why, at the end of the day, why are they so tricky animals? Well, they are difficult because we don't really know um, what their natural course is as a first consideration, meaning that we, we don't know how they behave in the long run. So whether they're going to go on to progress and cause problems or whether they're going to stay stable for many years. So that's sort of as general background of these uh, non-solid lesions. And that's very different than many other types of cancers where we have a much better sense of their natural course. They're also very difficult to evaluate radiologically because it's very difficult to define their borders accurately. They're, they're not as easy to define the edges and therefore to measure their growth rates is also much more challenging in terms of size. And then finally, in addition, they don't always grow by growing and extending their borders. They can grow sort of internally by becoming more dense. And that's, so all of that together makes them a very challenging problem. Uh, actually, it was this last aspect of the of the growth of the increase in density that was one of the main features of your paper. Could you briefly summarize for our listeners what what the key questions, what the key hypothesis of uh, this manuscript was, and what your key findings were? Well, the the key idea was we we knew that these non-solid nodules are different from solid nodules in the sense that they don't completely fill up the lung parenchyma where they're located, that they're still aerated lung there, and so that to grow, these can grow by internally filling up. So we wanted to see if we could measure that aspect of the growth, because sometimes they may not increase in size, but they may increase in density. Now, the use of density measurements has been well understood for uh, defining abnormalities. For example, it's been used in looking at lung nodules to see if they're calcified. It's been looking to see the amount of water in ARDS in lungs. So we felt that we could use density measurements to see if the nodules were growing by looking for change in density. And our main purpose here was to see if what's predicted radiologically based on simple mathematical theory of density would hold up when we looked at the pathology and looked at the actual mm -hmm. density of the nodules and correlated that pathologically. So what exactly did you do and what did you find? Well, what we did was we, we took a, a, a group of patients that had been resected where we had the actual CT images and then we looked at the density of the nodules and the density of the surrounding parenchyma and then we looked at the histology we were able to look at the uh, histologic images and determine what proportion of the histologic image was air and what proportion of the histologic image was soft tissue. And we did that both for the tumors and for the adjacent non-tumor lung. And then we were able to correlate that with the radiologic findings. And what, what were the results of this investigation? Well, the results were that the density of the nodules uh, correlated quite well with the histologic findings. So the CT findings in terms of what you would, what we found with the density measurements correlated 
nicely with the percent of soft tissue. So the denser the nodule uh, on CT, the more soft tissue there was histologically. And while it wasn't a perfect correlation because nodules change in their appearance after you take them out of the person, they're not as well aerated, the basic idea was that there was a, a nice linear correlation, meaning that the more the, the dense the nodule became on CT, the more soft tissue there was in the nodule. Mm -hmm. And that was and, the main purpose. And in the manuscript, you, you end your manuscript with giving a rule of thumb, a little recipe for radiologists. Uh, can you briefly uh, give us this, this rule of thumb again? Yeah, well, the rule of thumb, and it, you know, it, was, it came a little bit as a surprise when we worked out the mathematics, but it really should have been more obvious to us, is that if you think of pure lung or pure air as minus 1,000 and soft tissue as about 30, that, that every 100 Hounsfield units basically increases the density, uh, the amount of soft tissue that's present by 10%. Mm -hmm. and, and it ultimately, you know, it becomes purely solid, and, and that's it. But air is minus 1,000, lung is minus 800, meaning it's about 20% soft tissue. As you get to a non-solid nodule, it's minus 600, it's 40% soft tissue. So it, it really is, is actually quite simple. And we realize that, you know, every 100 Hounsfield unit is basically a 10% increase. I see. So you did a very thorough analysis of your material, including histology and a lot of uh, mathematical work. However, the whole work is based on a relatively small number of pulmonary nodules, 15 if I remember well. How, how reliable are your findings? Is this still an experimental kind of setting or, or is your rule of thumb ready for prime time? <laughs> wow, I wish I could answer that. <laughs> I think the idea is that theory is, is, is very solid, meaning that we can, we can be very confident that the amount of soft tissue present within an abnormality can be determined based on typical density. The small number of cases, I think, was just used to show that the, the, the concept is correct. I think the, the broader problem in making this really useful is understanding just how variable measurements are and, and in terms of making density measurements and looking for change in density measurements. And this is just an enormous problem in radiology in general that this touches on as well. We see this in measurement of solid nodules with volume measurements where there's enormous variability. And I think here with density measurements, we've got to learn how to quantify the, the error. Uh, you mentioned this problem or this potential problem of consistency or reproducibility. Uh, ultimately, your results should be or will be at some point uh, applied to serial examinations uh, in patients. What can the non-specialized radiologists do to ensure that these density measurements are as consistent and as reproducible as possible? Well, I think the most practical thing you can do, and it's, it's a lesson we've learned from doing tumor volumetry, is to try and compare apples to apples, mm -hmm. meaning that make sure the scan parameters are as close as possible to the same. Uh, different scanners will give different densities, uh, including different model numbers of the scanners. Uh, different pitch will change the density. Everything has an effect. So when you're trying to do density measurements, just like when you're trying to do volume measurements, you need to have the scan as close as possible to the same. 
and you try to measure when you do the measurements try to make sure you're looking side by side where you can put your cursors for measuring the density uh, in as close related area as was on the original scan those are the things you can do right now mm -hmm. your investigation was focused on changes in density and on the increase in density now These subsolid nodules have a number of other features. There is size, there is morphology, there is location, there is the question whether this is just a solitary lesion or if we have multiple subsolid nodules. What, in your opinion, will be the role of density and how will it interact with all these other factors? Well, I think, as you've pointed out, that you, you've already alluded to the complexity of this question uh, of you know what to do with these sub-solid or non-solid nodules and, you know, how do we manage them? And, and I think the answers to are, are, are quite challenging. We really don't know a lot about what to do with these. Given that as background, I think density is a way to say, and possibly even more reliably than change in size, I think density measurements may actually be more consistent, will be to show that, to suggest this nodule really is changing. And I think that's where where we're going to be at with that. I think we'll be able to say this nodule, while it may not have gotten any bigger, really is getting denser. Now, what we do with that information at this point, I'm still not sure. So uh, currently, you don't see that there will be a certain a percentage increase, a relative increase, a certain threshold uh, of increase where you say, okay, now this nodule becomes actionable. Now we have to do something. My My sense is that uh, for non-solid nodules, as long as they stay non-solid, uh, we may not have to do anything with them. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a general opinion out there, this was in the recent review by Travis, mm -hmm. that non-solid nodules are 100% curable, mm -hmm. so long as they're non-solid. So whether they're denser non-solid or you know less dense non-solid, I think nobody really knows the answer. I think we're currently making it actionable when we, we can show growth. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the right approach. I think there's a lot of people out there now that are thinking that maybe as long as nodules are staying non-solid, a, a, a strong consideration will be to continue to observe them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this, this issue is really a very controversial issue, and I believe that the whole topic of non-solid lung nodules and their follow-up will, will keep us busy sometime in the future. I have one last question. I found the whole idea and the beauty and the simplicity uh, of your concept that you are presenting and developing in this paper, uh, I found this very appealing. How did you get this idea? Was it, was it through your clinical experience? Was it through your participation in a, in a huge lung cancer screening trial where you, I suppose, where you see these nodules all the time? Or did you just wake up one morning and, and think, this is to go this how we'll do it well I uh, it, it, it really came about that we, we were seeing so many of these in the course of screening and, and we really were struggling with what to do uh, I've done a lot of work in terms of measuring tumor volumes of solid nodules and and even there was so challenging to, to really be sure of, of volume change and when we started looking at volume change in these non-solid ones it was even more challenging and we had done some work with density of small nodules previously looking at density to try and determine for small nodules uh, with thicker slice sections whether you could accurately determine if they were calcified or not. 
based on their density, even though it was lower, you could figure out the proportion that was calcified. So we said, let's try this approach here and see if we could figure out the soft tissue. And that's when we realized how simple it would be, in a sense, this 100 Hounsfield unit rule of, of just saying, hey, it, it simply increases in density. It's easy to measure density. You can find a location within a nodule to get the density without having to really define the actual borders and measure the volume. So it was just a very simple way of doing it, at least to get an idea of whether the thing is growing in a way that, that anyone can do. You don't need sophisticated software. Um, it, it's just readily available. So that's where the whole idea came about. Yeah. Well, I think this idea will receive a lot of attention, as will uh, the articles, and I wish uh, that the articles is read by a huge number of people. Uh, I thank you very much for your participation in our podcast. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Good morning. This is Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology. Uh, and today I'm joined by Dr. Pierre Emmanuel Ratu, previously of INSERM in Paris, where he and a number of co authors authored a paper entitled Endothelial Cell Derived Microparticles Loaded with Iron Oxide Nanoparticles Feasibility of MRI Monitoring in Mice. And, uh, uh, I was not familiar with these microparticles or their biological lifespan, and I was very interested to have the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Ratu about this. Uh, Dr. Ratu currently serves as a postdoctoral research fellow uh, in the hematology group of the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Ratu. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, why don't we get into our discussion? Uh, what exactly are endothelial-derived microparticles? So microparticles are defined as vesicles that are present uh, in mainly in the plasma, but also in some tissues uh, like acerostatic plaque. And these vesicles have a size, a diameter ranging from 0.1 to 1 micrometer and they are characterized by, by the exposure on their outer leaflet of anionic phospholipids like phosphatidylserine. Okay. How are they actually formed? Uh, these microparticles are released by cells. Uh, virtually all cells can release microparticles, uh, and they are released by cells undergoing apoptosis or, uh, and all cells undergoing activation, and particularly uh, a good example is platelet microparticles released uh, following platelet activation. But all cells can be activated and can release microparticles uh, after this activation. Uh, I, I, I understood that they were released at times of cell stress. Uh, someone uh, described them as cellular life rafts. Uh, do you think that's an appropriate terminology? Uh, they, they can be a biomarker. There, are, there is now a lot of studies showing that um, circulating, particularly circulating microparticles, that is microparticles present in the blood uh, of patients, uh, could be an interesting biomarker, biomarker, for example, of acute coronary event uh, or a biomarker of thrombosis also. So um, they reflect damage to, to the cells. And so, 
Is there any understanding of what their actual function is, why they're released? It's not really clear. Uh, in your question, there are two parts. Why are they released and what is the uh, effect of these microparticles? Uh, yes, exactly. Why they are released, it's not really, really clear. Uh, some people think it could be a way for the cell to release uh, unwanted uh, molecules, but it's not really clear. Uh, and what uh, they do, second part, it, there are more evidence showing that they have a biological uh, function, biological effects, particularly they could induce inflammation. They are a really important actor of uh, thrombosis particularly and they could also uh, modulate angiogenesis so uh, uh, their function may be to stimulate other organs to uh, for other biological processes yeah yes exactly they, they are okay. now considered as a mediator okay and why did you choose to study them what was the study that you did that you published in radiology um, so we focused on uh, endothelial cells microparticles because these endothelial cells microparticles are particularly interesting uh, because uh, they have been shown to uh, be uh, good biomarkers and also uh, they have been implicated in several uh, biological processes such as uh, particularly angiogenesis and uh, inflammation. And what exactly did you do in your study? What was the uh, so experiment? The first thing we did uh, is we developed a strategy to label uh, these microparticles using anionic na iron uh, nanoparticles. These nanoparticles are the size of uh, eight uh, nanometers. Mm -hmm. And so, so we developed, uh, in fact, two strategies. A strategy of internal labeling, that is nanoparticles uh, are inside the microparticles and yes. another strategy are, are where the nanoparticles are at the surface of microparticles. Yes. So it was the, the first thing we did and we were successful because we, we succeeded in uh, having these microparticles and uh, we observed these nicely, these microparticles degraded with nanoparticles uh, using mm -hmm. electron microscopy. And right. we're using flow cytometry, which is the technique, the gold standard technique for uh, assessing microparticles. We showed that uh, the labeling with nanoparticles does not change the size of the microparticles. Okay. So the first step was to label these uh, microparticles. And then we injected uh, in mice uh, these uh, endothelial cell microparticles. Uh, labeled with nanoparticles, and we perform MRI to see where the microparticles are cleared, uh, and it was the clearance was a way to uh, assess first if we can see these uh, microparticles using MRI. So, mm -hmm. and where were they cleared? What uh, organ cleared them? Yeah, the the main organ was the spleen and we could see uh, very nicely decreased intensity in the spleen after only five minutes after injection of 
microparticle labeled with nanoparticles because uh, when these microparticles are taken up by the spleen, the signal decreases in uh, in the spleen. So the main organ was the spleen, but also there was an uptake in the liver and in the lung, in the lungs, but not in the kidneys. Okay. Uh, now, in your in the discussion, you mentioned that uh, other investigators studying microparticles have found other organs as the main organ of clearance, and you suggest that the origin of the microparticles may affect where they're cleared. Could you tell us a little more about that thought? Yes, exactly. Um, There is particularly a study published uh, five years ago uh, showing that um, microparticles derived from red blood cells uh, labeled in a radioactive manner were cleared mainly in the liver and only uh, at 5% in the spleen. So clearly there, there is a difference between uh, our study and their study and it should be highlighted uh, right now that the labeling we use with nanoparticles is not responsible for uh, a change in clearance because in our study we checked this using another uh, strategy instead of labeling with nanoparticles, we also labeled microparticles with uh, fluorescent dye and we observed mm-hmm. exactly the same uh, clearance. So it is not due to the nanoparticles that could interfere with the clearance, but I think it is really a difference due to the type of microparticles. And it has to be uh, said that the composition of microparticles uh, depends on the cell they come from. And these microparticles derive from other cell cells, harbor many of the molecules that are harbored uh, in another cell cells, and the same for uh, a red blood cell. So this is likely the composition of these microparticles that is responsible for this difference between our two studies. Thank you. Tell me, uh, what are the next steps? What are the next lines to pursue uh, in using endothelial-derived microparticles for molecular imaging. Uh, What do you think might be some future potential clinical or research uh, applications? So there are two possible applications. First, diagnosis, and second, a therapeutic application. So for diagnosis, we we have shown previously, uh, two, three years ago in circulation, that endothelial cell microparticle can contribute to angiogenesis, particularly when there is, in mice, particularly when there is an ischemic inlib. So what we could do is that we could target the, use the, the, the nanoparticle to target the uh, ischemic area. And so it's interesting for the inlib, but it could be even more interesting for the heart particularly when there is a heart infarction, if we can uh-huh. uh, use these nanoparticles to target the microparticles to the heart, I think it would be really interesting and could favor angiogenesis and thus um, recovery. Say. Oh, okay, very interesting. So it could be the, the first part, a therapeutic approach using uh, magnets to uh, target uh, organ of interest. The second thing could be uh, diagnosis. So um, if we are able to inject these microparticles um, 
microparticles are really important in thrombosis, and we could maybe, uh, and they are also um, taken up in the site of thrombosis. So we could use these microparticles, these labeled microparticles, to better detect uh, site of uh, thrombosis. So it could be a diagnosis uh, implication. Well, uh, Dr. Ratu, thank you very much for a very, very informative discussion uh, on a very exciting area of research. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, too. You're welcome.